Amen. Titus chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Last week, uh, we started uh, this book in Titus in a series entitled Every Good Work. It's Paul's letter to Titus. And the hope for us is that we would see in this very short letter, this is one of those epistles, it's a pastoral letter that Paul has written uh, to, to someone who partners with him in ministry, in this case Titus, this very short letter where, where we get a really helpful picture of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Not that we're just people that hopefully exhibit good morals and that care for one another in a genuine way, but also are being transformed by the very Spirit of God to be prepared for good works. This is one of the themes that we're going to find throughout the very uh, chapter, or chapter, not only chapter 1, but chapter 2 and 3 of Titus. Everywhere you look, you're going to see that there's preparation, training in godliness, the Lord transforming us through His Spirit so that we might be able to do the things that He's called us to do. To be prepared for, as chapter 3, we'll see every good work. This morning, we're going to look at these verses in chapter 5 through 16 and really get a picture of what it looks like to see the church as the place that marks God's people. The church is the place where leaders can train and care for and minister to those, that God's character is shown through his people, and that it's given to, it's discipled to, it's taught to others so that we might be prepared for these good works. This is Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, we'll read through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes to Titus and he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Now look, I know it's challenging. To, the last thing you read is detestable, disobedient. And then you're like, all right, thanks be to God, right? The introductory verses we looked at last week, we saw a framework, I think, that hopefully helped us understand 
really what Paul is doing in writing to Titus, his, his friend, his counterpart in ministry, this one who is on the island of Crete to really help minister to these fledgling, these young churches that are literally brand new, and to help keep them truly living, not just rightly on the outside, but on the inside, that they're truly faithful, that they're truly pursuing the Lord, and he's helping shape doctrine as a part of that. Last week, we saw these things, three things very specifically that Paul pointed out to Titus in in verses 1 through 4. One, we saw the character of God. The very character of God is the main thing that Paul wanted to illuminate for Titus, to see that God is true, that he is faithful, that he is just, that he's one who keeps his word so that you and I can sing things together like, hey, I can take God at his word because he's true. Second, not only did we see the character of God, but we saw the consistency of God. Not that he was true for a time or is true only for right now, but that he always has been true. He is true, and he will constantly, forevermore in the future, be true. Third, we saw this, the calling of God, that the people of God are meant to be built up in the faith, in the knowledge of the truth. Look back into verse 1, and you see all these things that, that, that Paul is saying to shape this, that we want to be built up in the faith. That's what he's talking about, which is the faith of God's elect, and the knowledge of truth, which leads to godliness. You see, what we believe comes out. The things that we truly believe will actually be reflected in our lives. And this call to godliness, as Paul writes to Titus, is one in which there's transformation of being shaped into the likeness of Christ through the Holy Spirit working in us. Three things kind of following that same framework we're going to find in the church as we look at this passage today. Number one, we're going to see the character of the church and its leaders. The character of the church that you and I are a part of, the New Testament church and, and the church forevermore. The church, the character that we're called to have and the character of the leaders in the church Second, the consistency of the church that ought to be modeled by its leaders. And third, the calling of God for believers that's both unique, very specific for folks in offices like elder that we'll look at today, but it's also a calling that is universal. Um, I want to tell you, the older that I get, I'm finding something out about myself, and it's weird because you know what it's like when you become older and you turn into your father, right? Um, I just... I have always been this like really spontaneous person, kind of go with the flow, like don't need, you know, any sort of schedule or routine or anything like that. And those of you that know me can attest to this probably, right? Um, But the older I get, I'm finding this out about myself. I'm beginning to actually love order, right? And it's done now because I said it out loud uh, to all of you, Um, but look, I want to be present with people. I want, to be, I want to be with people in the moment. I want to enjoy moments. I, I like to live in the here and now. I don't really love thinking about the future and what's to come and spending my right now thinking about another time that's then going to be right now. But I'm actually beginning to love this thing that we call a schedule, right? We got back into the new year, got back in the groove. People are in the right places. Um, look, I'm beginning to love order, but I don't just mean routine. I really mean something 
more than that. Because order and what it, what it does and, and structure and organization and all of these things don't just make life more efficient. They don't just make life better. In fact, they really ought to make life more beautiful. That's the goal of order. So my wife, Mia, and I, we are 13 years into marriage, and we've finally figured out after 13 years, I think, like, we get dinner time now. Like, that's how far we've made it. So many of you have probably progressed much deeper uh, into marriage and life than us. But, like, we have four kids in our house, and we're 13 years into marriage, and we've just figured, I mean, I'm talking about just figured out dinner time in 2023. And now we have a plan going forward for every night and, and all of the things that we're going to work hard to prepare and construct and to make that we're going to put before these four little people that nobody's going to eat, right? <laughs> Not that we're bitter at all about that. But we put, put this before people, right? It sounds like some of you can identify with this. Um, look, it's been a struggle trying to take care of all six of us and, and, and giving everybody duties and responsibilities to accomplish these things. But we've grown and we've made tasks and we've given one another roles and we've thought about what we need to do to make this moment matter. Why? Because it feeds into every other moment of every night of our life. If people are yelling at each other and frustrated with one another and we've made three different dinners, which has happened a lot more than I thought could ever happen, right? We're feeding different people different things. People are getting upset. People are frustrated. And it just spills over. It carries over to all those other things. But now, I can't believe I'm saying these things. We have order in our home, right? We've made some decisions. We've handed out some responsibilities. It's made life not only better, it's made it beautiful, the verses that we just read, and I want to confess, the verses that we just read together, and some of it's early morning, and some of it's we're only had one or two or three or four cups of coffee, right? So we're not really moving yet, maybe. But all those verses that we just read, whether you read them off your, the page in your Bible or you read them off the screen, they probably don't jump off the page to you as beautiful. You didn't probably read those words and say, man, this is really beautiful. This is an inspirational text. But here's the thing I want to tell you that Paul is communicating to Titus. He's helping him see the church that can be beautiful. The church that's beautiful in both its faith and its function. Faith in God and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and in function a church that loves others. Faith working through love. And the way it starts is genuinely with order. That's where it starts. The book of Titus is often called, along with First and Second Timothy, what we would say are pastoral epistles. These are very direct and personal letters that the Apostle Paul would write to both Timothy and Titus. We would probably date Titus in the early 60s, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of, of, uh, of 61 to 64. Not like 1961 to 64, right? Like, like the first, 61 to 64. First century writings, probably after his imprisonment that's detailed uh, in Acts and before his imprisonment and subsequent beheading, this will be one of the last things ultimately that Paul would write that would be canonized, that would be part of Scripture. Titus had been with Paul throughout certain parts of his ministry. And to you, Titus might not be a household name, but I bet that you know more about him or have at least been acquainted with him better than you think. In Galatians chapter 2, Titus joins Paul in his journey to Jerusalem. 
as Paul is going to meet with Peter and James and John and share with the Jerusalem Council and all these folks that he has been called to go preach the gospel, not to the Jews specifically, but to the Gentiles. Titus is one, he's a Greek who is uncircumcised, who has accompanied him on that journey. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul describes Titus as one that he's sending to the Corinthian church. Remember, the church at Corinth made this promise they were going to give money to the Jerusalem churches to meet needs. And Titus is the one who goes to see that they're good on that promise. He goes as one of Paul's kind of emissaries and friends that would go to this place and say, hey, I want to encourage you guys to give to these churches. Do the things that you said you would do. Here in this letter, what we find is this. Titus is on the island of Crete, the largest of of the Greek islands, one of the fifth largest in the Mediterranean. This large island was home to all of these little house churches, but there's a struggle, there's a problem, there's an issue. These churches need order. Why? Because they are new. I mean, brand spanking new. The churches in Crete have likely been founded by those who've come back to this island after hearing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ at Pentecost. After receiving the gospel, they come back to their hometown and they plant churches. They want to begin bodies of faith where they can share the good news of Jesus with one another and proclaim the gospel to the world around them. So Paul instructs Titus on how to bring order to these churches, and it begins with establishing leadership. You'll notice that the call to order starts with leadership. Titus is to appoint this very specific role, elders to lead churches. And in this instruction, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see the character of the church and its leaders. So what is an elder? If you're like me, you may have grown up in a church where there wasn't elders, or there weren't rather elders. There's a different type of leadership structure. That might not be the polity or kind of the procedure of what it looked like to operate within the leadership structure of the church in which you came from. But not only can we say we believe this here at Double Oak Community Church, we're thankful there are so many brothers and sisters that read these scriptures and see that elder is a necessary and God-given office within the context of the church. What's an elder? Here's a passage in Titus 1 that's going to describe this. Two others that you're going to want to see. We don't have enough time to look at them today in detail. But 1 Timothy chapter 3, specifically verses 1 through 7, you're going to see something similar that we saw just in these opening verses, specifically all the way through verse 9. All of these qualifications, all of these standards, this character list that is given. You're going to find the same thing in 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7. Also, you look into 1 Peter chapter 5, and you're going to see in 1 Peter the understanding of what it means to really shepherd, to really care for, to really elder a church. Because that word elder really takes on Several different meanings of words. It really means to shepherd. It really means to pastor. It really means to oversee. That's what the word elder means. So this office that Paul is giving Titus to establish order is an important one. Now, often we associate roles of leadership with a couple of things. One, competency, right? An ability to accomplish a task. But also there's a measure of qualifications, Things that one must be proficient in or have experience in to lead others. Every time, you and I, you and I are acquainted with this, because every time we make a resume or we apply for a job, this is one of the things that we're doing, right? We apply to jobs that we can do, hopefully, right? We apply to jobs where we're competent and we kind of meet the description of the things that are needed. 
but also we have this qualification, this set of prerequisites, these things that allow us to take on this work. Here's the thing. For Paul, before any mention of the function of teaching or leading through teaching, Paul qualifies these leaders by their character. By their character. Not just their ability to teach the word. He's going to get to that. But most important to Paul is character. So look at these verses, specifically 6 through 8. You can begin to see the character of the elder in the church. A model that we follow today. This list is going to be very similar to what you find in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, but it's not identical. And that's to point out very clearly that these are general guidelines for those who are fit to lead God's church in a local capacity. So let's look at this list. The first one in verse 6, we find this, above reproach. This means blameless. Now there's a big difference between blameless and faultless. Doesn't mean that someone's perfect, that elders are perfect. I'm an elder here at Double Oak Community Church in Chelsea. There is no way that I could stand before you and say that I'm faultless. You know that. However, elders are to be blameless. And here's what the difference is. Here's what that means. They're to have a good reputation against whom accusations cannot consistently be made. Will elders be perfect? Absolutely not. But the hope, however is that they will be ones who live lives that are blameless. Second, we see the husband of one wife is the characteristic that is mentioned. Now, this means faithful, that an elder is marked by fidelity to his spouse. It doesn't specifically exclude single men necessarily or those who have remarried. Instead, it means men with a strong marriage, men committed to their wives. And quite frankly, it's really important for me to interject here and say very clearly and very directly, although I hope it would be with much gentleness and humility and graciousness, that this passage in Titus 1, as well as the one in 1 Timothy 3, and and the, the implication and really what's really shown in 1 Peter 5, will reveal that the office of elder is to be occupied by a man, to be occupied by a male. Now, there are other traditions and denominations and people of faith that would say, well, that, that's not really the case, but I want to be really, really clear. That's what we believe here at Double Oak Community Church in Chelsea. And it's not misogynistic. It's not in such a way that we would say we want to put down a gender. That is not true. We believe and can state unequivocally that God has created man and woman in his image. Male and female, he created them. We'll find out in Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 and 27. The scripture is true that there's no distinction of importance of males being more important and females being less important. Not at all. However, if we're going to be faithful to the scriptures and interpret them as, and I'm saying not just the English, I'm talking about the original text. If we're going to interpret them truthfully, we believe that this office is one that is set apart for males. And this is their character. They ought to be ones who are faithful to their spouse. Next, children that are believers. The word here implies small children. So if you read that and it says, and his children are believers, that might kind of give you some pause. And you might even know my family and say, hey, I know you've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And I haven't seen them make a public profession of faith and be in baptismal waters. 
So, Michael, how could you be qualified to lead, to care, to shepherd, to minister, to pastor in this way? Here's the thing. The word implies small children, and this is the interpretation that's hopefully most helpful and most accurate surrounding this, that an elder is one that has a life where the people that are a part of his home, specifically even smaller children, experience the faith of God. They're ones who experience and constantly live under a place that is governed by and marked by belief in God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A life that is grounded in the Christian faith of their parents for these small children. Next, not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination. The thrust here is that elders are not to be governed by fleshly desires or pride that would allow them to not to express the humility of receiving instructions or mothers. Not debaucherous or insubordinate. It continues on not to be arrogant or quick-tempered, not to over-pastor or over-shepherd in a way that is personal or domineering, and not to be a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Some of these things don't need a ton of exposition. They're they're really, quite frankly, very simple things that, that ought to not just mark the character of an elder, but that ought to mark the character of those who believe in Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't merely state here what an elder should not be. He also states what an elder should be. Look at these characteristics in verse 8. Hospitable. Hospitable. Why? An elder, elder is to be one. You want people leading the church who are welcoming to all. That all people are welcome. No matter where they're from, no matter what their background is. Think about Jesus and his life in the Gospels, reclining with people at table, being with those who were marked by society as sinners. Elders of a church are those who are called to be hospitable, to be welcoming to all. They're to be lovers of good, to, to, to be desirous of the very goodness of God that we say about in all things, self-controlled. Why is that so important? Elders are called to exemplify the fruit of the Spirit, to be marked by the Holy Spirit, to be living lives where it's obvious that the transformation of the Holy Spirit is taking place. And that person, that leader, is one who you could look to and say, that that person is becoming more and more like Christ. When I see them, when I interact with them, when I have conversations with them, I'm I'm encouraged. I I recognize that God is at work within them. Elders are to be self-controlled. And then finally, these things, upright, holy, and disciplined, set apart from the world and committed distinctly to the Lord. Finally, look into verse 9 and you see this, that elders are to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, and then now here you get the purpose clause, the statement for what elders in, in, their, in their official role are going to do. The things that mark them in character, we've seen that. But now what are the things that are the competency things, the things that they're going to carry out? What is that? It's this. To be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So it's important to note here that Paul's moving from character to really a commissioning in a sense. To say this is the specific charge. Your charge is to teach the word, to safeguard the gospel, 
to protect the doctrines of Scripture that are true. It's the unique responsibility of the elders, not just in the church universal, but in this church, in our church, the church to which you either belong as a member, the church to which you attend consistently, the church that you're visiting, whatever your relationship is to this place, this ought to be the promise that we make to you that as elders in this church, that myself and that Joe Harvey and that Richard Self and those who will subsequently come and join our elder body at some point, that we're going to be people who protect and preach the gospel. That there's no life apart from Jesus Christ. That we don't preach moralism or behavior or good works as something to get to God, but instead we say that the life in Christ, the life that we experience in union with Christ by the power of the Spirit will reveal good works and hopefully help people do this. Believe the gospel. Live in the reality of all that it promises us and live it out to the people around us. That's the charge here that is given for elders. That's the very specific thing they're called to do. Next, in verses 10 through 16, this is what you're going to see. The consistency of the church, the consistency of the church that's modeled by its leaders. Last week, we talked about Crete, this, this island, a little bit, and kind of gave some background on it. And look, the, just from a history lesson standpoint, Crete is a unique place. Paul is strategic in his desire to see Crete have these robust, incredible, thriving churches. Why? Because it's a, it's a giant island. It's the largest of the Greek islands. It's the one where there's tons of ports all around it. He knows that people are going to be coming and going from these places constantly. And so what's his goal? His goal is this, to say, man, what if we had churches all over this place that could literally impact the world from right here? These are hubs for trade and business and merchants. It's an opportunity to say, man, let's take the gospel here and transform others. So Paul, as verse 5 says, he leaves Titus in Crete. But Crete is not just this place that's going to be a rich resource to share the gospel because of its locale and all the ports and cities and things like that. Crete's a wild place. In fact, commentators and people would kind of describe it as full of wild animals, but not talking about animals, actually talking about the people of Crete, that they are the wild animals. And you get some indication of what they're like as you look down into verse 12, and you see this phrase, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This was an island, a place full of Gentiles, Gentile descent, no, no Jewish background here, but people that were largely pagans who were selfish and they would do anything to better themselves. How do we know that? We can know it just from the language. The word critizo, it means to be a liar. It means to be a liar. Like this day and age, like you know how things translate and they don't translate super well across certain languages? And you see something that, that says this, and, but you put it into another language and it says something really goofy or silly? Like, if we were to translate Crete, and like, it, like if you popped in Crete in Google, it would basically like come up for us in a rudimentary way as like liar island. Like, that's what we're dealing with. This group of people that do not tell the truth. So Paul's quick to point out in verse 12 that the words of even one of the most famous people in Crete, this is who he's quoting, Epimenides, who is a philosopher, a Greek philosopher, who was vastly respected in this culture, but he's a Cretan himself, and he says this about his own people. It would literally be the equivalent of our mayor walking around and saying, the people of Chelsea, man, they are, uh, 
They're liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. He's talking this way about his own people. And it's not just that they lie, but look at the language he employs. That they're always liars. Always. There's a consistency there. This is not just a problem that something has happened, but the problem really lies in the frequency of which it's happening. Remember, if you looked last week into verses 1 through 4, we saw that God is not the God who just, just doesn't lie. He's the God who never lies. And Paul is using these verses to make a distinction and show the very difference between the Christian life and the life of one who doesn't follow Jesus. All of Paul's language here is present Active indicative. And here's what that means. It's not something that's merely done in the past, but it's actually happening right now in the future. So in this day, this whole last set of verses here that we just read really is kind of pointing out. Paul saying, here's the problem. Here's the issue. There are these Cretan leaders in these young churches that are kind of really putting forth some of the same things. and maybe a different flavor, but some of the same things that we saw at the churches in Galatia. The same issues that they were struggling with. What was the issue? The issue was the circumcision party. This group of people said that if you want to be in Christ, you basically first have to become a Jew. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to observe all these feast days. In other words, to make it really, really simple, you've got to do this stuff, and then you're acceptable to God. And Paul, in this moment, is saying something very similar here is happening on Crete, and it's destroying families, and it's hurting people, because they're being told a lie. And the lie is this, that you got to get yourself together and then God will be pleased in you. And Paul says, no, that's not the case at all. That the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is effectual in making you new. If you repent of your sin and believe in the gospel, then God saves you through Christ. By the Spirit, and you are made new. Paul's rebuking this way in this church and his leadership, so it's really important to see. It's not just the character of leaders, but it's also the consistency. That elders, that leaders in a church are called to consistently protect against things that are lies in the church. Finally, we can look at this passage as a whole and see the calling of God for believers that is both unique and universal. I want you to think about this. The calling of God for the church is unique and universal. I told you earlier that my family has done this thing where, you know, 13 years into marriage and at almost 40 years old, I start to have a routine in my life, right? There's some rhythm. There's some things that are happening. People have been given in our family with respect to dinner time, at least, right, at this moment. That's, and that, for me, that's enough, all right? This is a huge win for my family. But people have roles and responsibilities and designations and things that they do. Here's the thing. Nobody is loved any less because they don't share the same role as somebody else. Right? Like, I don't want my five-year-old cooking dinner over a hot stove. This is no good for anyone. But just because she doesn't do that doesn't mean that she's not a part of the family. Here's the unique thing that Paul is really pointing out to Titus. There's a very specific call to elders. It's a unique call to be people of, of marked character that reveals their relationship with God. And this competency and this clarity surrounding their ability to teach the scriptures and protect against heresies and lies and anything that would happen in the church that would cause people to see the gospel as not true or not trustworthy. That's a distinct and a unique 
call. But Paul's also stating in this passage, here's the universal call. We're all called to have this kind of character. We might not all teach the scriptures within the context of the church in a professional way, in a lay leadership way. We, we might not all be a part of that. However, all of these things that are mentioned surrounding the character of an elder, of a leader, to be above reproach, to have fidelity to one's spouse and relationships, to create environments where children experience the gospel in the home, to not be debaucherous, to not be insubordinate, to be above reproach, to not be arrogant, to be humble, not to be quick-tempered, not to be drunk or violent or greedy for gain, to be hospitable, to care for others, to love good, to be self-controlled. All of these things are not things that are meant just for elders. They're meant for all of us. That ought to be the way all of us live. That we all long to see these things. Not Well, the leaders do that. No, Christ has called all of us to live in this way. And we're empowered to live in this by his Holy Spirit. As we're transformed into the likeness of Christ through it. We're all called to these things. So elders have a very specific and distinct, unique call. But there's also this universal calling that we would all be people who modeled character like this. Two things that we have the opportunity today to apply in our lives right here in the here and now based on the text that we have just looked at. Number one, you and I have the opportunity to leave this place today hearing the very word of God and to pursue godly character. And look at this list. Can we assess ourselves and measure ourselves and look to say... Not that we would be more pleasing to God if we do some of these things better than those, but man, to, to really evaluate, man, is this the kind of life that I'm experiencing and that I'm living? And to be candid with one another and say, look, there's spots here where we're struggling with this, and ultimately I need to be humble and confess sin and repent and follow the Lord. Second, this, could we pursue one another? To pursue one another that we'd become a real community church. We've been praying this. We prayed it this morning together. Man, we want to pursue one another in community. We want to connect with one another. You know, one of the most amazing things that you could do this week is this. Is you could ask someone, hey man, let's look at this list and tie this together. Man, where do you, do you see me as someone doing these things? Do you see me as someone being faithful? Do you see me as someone who is loving others and being hospitable? Are there anything in my character that, that needs to be addressed in ways where I can grow in my faith? These are hard questions to ask, but the beautiful thing is if you're in community, man, you can ask these questions of one another and really genuinely say, man, help me here. You know why? You know why you can ask hard questions like that? In that space, here's why. Because if we're living in community together, this is the reality of the gospel that we are experiencing with one another. That there's no condemnation in Christ. That we can be bold and say, man, help me, brother. Help me, sister. See who I am so that I might repent if there's any error in me and that I might glorify God. The goal of our character and our consistency and our calling is not that we would be better, but that we would live lives together as the church that is more beautiful. More beautiful. More reflective of who Jesus is and what he's done. Why? What's the end goal? What's the, what's the point of it all? To bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. To sing together. To say together. 
Christ, be magnified in our lives as a church. That's the hope. So this morning, we're going to take an opportunity to pray together and then respond in worship and ask that the Lord would transform us and deepen this as our character. And then also specifically as a church, I want to confess that I need your prayers as an elder, as one who is called here by the Lord and affirmed by others to shepherd this congregation, to care for you, to minister to you, to offer you the ministry of the word and to pray with you. And pray that I would be one who continually pursues and follows the Lord, that that would be the case for Joe Harvey, for, for Richard Self, and for others who would come alongside us in this endeavor to shepherd God's church. Pray that we would be people that don't just model good behavior, but that we model the very love of Christ because we believe in Jesus and we live in his reality so that we can live it out for others. If you will, bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, this is the plea of our heart. We long for you to be glorified. Father, that we'd be gospel people, that Jesus Christ would be magnified in our lives. Father, you've given us order, instruction, a picture of what your church is called to look like. And Father, you've given us the gift of eldership, people who are called to shepherd others in the church, to minister the word faithfully, to teach faithfully, to protect the truth of the scriptures, the very gospel, the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. Father, a gift that you've given us. So Father, I pray for our elders, along with my brothers and sisters, I pray for Joe Harvey and for Richard Self and for myself that, that you would cause us to be people who continually, Father, are marked by who you are and what you've done for us. Transform us by the power of your spirit. And Father, may we all be people who are being transformed and that these character traits of, of what it means to exhibit the fruit of the spirit, Father, they shine forth in us as we read your word, as we pray together as we commune with you, as we experience fellowship with one another and hear and receive the gospel. Father, we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.